Our Father and our God, we have gathered as your people this morning to worship the God who is thrice holy. The God who in his very existence, his very nature, his character is qualified and best modified by that one word, holy. He is holy in love. He is holy in wrath. He is holy in mercy. He is holy in judgment. He is holy in long-suffering. He is a God who is holy, holy, holy. As angels sing, even now as they fly through the courts of heaven, and we, O oh God, want to be a people who relate to you as a God of immense holiness. And I pray, Father, that our worship will reflect that we have come to know a God in Christ Jesus who is holy. Might our worship be pleasing to you this morning, Father. We are a people who have grown awfully comfortable, a people who, grow, who have grown awfully content. We are a people who are in danger of growing and taking our ease on Zion. And you never intended us to be such. You never intended us to be a people who were experiencing anxiety, but you never intended us to grow fat and lazy. And I pray, Father, that our worship today might stir us up to a new commitment, to a new level and, and determination to be all that you would have us be. Oh God, we are a people who long not to remain the same. We are a people who long to be different. We long to be more of what you would have us to be. Our Father, there are 32 people who are a part of this church who cannot cease praising you and thanking you for all of your kind providences over these last few days. Thank you for getting us there and back safely. Thank you for what we saw. Thank you for what we witnessed. Thank you for what we shared. And we pray, O oh God, that that experience will make us different people. Souls that have been scarred by your very finger. I pray, O oh God, leave a mark on us. Leave a mark that will never allow us to accept mediocrity again. Father, we do thank you for the families that we, um, that we have in mind today, families headed up by men, strong men, godly men. And I pray that more and more you will teach us what it means to be fathers, to be leaders in our home, and pray that this day might not ever come again without us making strides forward in leading our family in paths of righteousness. Now, Father, accept our gifts. They're small. Um, it's not a matter, Father, of how much we're giving today. It's a matter of how much we have left after we gave. For that, O oh God, we ask your forgiveness. Make us a people who are willing to sacrifice for things eternal. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. This will date me, I'm sure, but um, when I was a kid, there was a, there was a guy on, in the movies, and he seemed to always make it on television too, but uh, his name was Errol Flynn. And Errol Flynn was kind of the swashbuckling uh, kind of dude who uh, always was fighting somebody and delivering some fair damsel. I guess the only um, uh, good current day uh, similarity could be found in uh, Indiana Jones, something like that. All about to say, in, in my opinion, the, uh, 
The biblical version of Errol Flynn is Joshua. I don't know whether you know much about this book, the book of Joshua. It's a, it's a great book. It's a book of history. In fact, if you're trying to get, just get started with uh, a daily devotional time, uh, Joshua would be a great place to start. Uh, there's nothing boring about the book of Joshua. Now, there are some books that I, I wouldn't recommend that highly, that is, in terms of where to start. Uh, but Joshua is, is great. You, you know the, the, the story a little bit about uh, Moses, who's led them out of Egypt, and they're, they're fighting all these battles, and now it's time to cross the, the, the Jordan back into the Promised Land and start. That's where they, the, the first battle is. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, and, and then there was the defeated Ai, and then all the kings. That they, and just battle after battle, battle. And Joshua is the guy leading Israel, doing all that. He was uh, really a, a, a model in so many ways. Well, the text that I have for you this morning comes at the end of Joshua's ministry. Joshua is about to die, uh, and it's almost over for Joshua, and he calls all of Israel together. Uh, he calls the nation of Israel together for one grand meeting and, um, and speaks to the elders uh, of the nation of Israel and reminds them of all that God has done, all the deliverances of the kings. He does this in the beginning, really beginning in, verse, in chapter 23, and goes all through chapter 23, and then uh, he continues in chapter 24, and is telling them about the kings that they defeated and how God has delivered them in such wonderful ways. And then he's not only at the close of his life, but now he draws to the close of the speech. And um, at the close of that speech, he says something that is my text this morning. I only want to read you two verses. Uh, verses 23 and 24. And excuse me, verse 14 and verse 15. Uh, yes. So, this is the end of that speech, at the end of his life, a long life of military conquest and victory and leadership and, and direction and, and dealings with the people and with God. And, and he comes to the end of, of his speech and this is how he closes. Now, therefore, having heard all that you've heard, having, had, having been reminded of all those deliverances by God, now, therefore, fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and in truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of our Lord endures forever. Ladies and gentlemen, there are very few scenes like this one in the, in the, in the, in the Bible. You'll notice that right after that, so the people answered and said, I mean, his speech is over. He's built him up into this, uh, this frenzy, perhaps, and, and then called for him and says, I don't know who you're going to serve. I don't know whether you're going to serve the gods of the Amorites, or you're going to serve the, 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 whatever god you're going to serve, I don't know who you're going to serve, or the gods of Egypt. But listen to me. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. You know, um, at that moment, Joshua is indeed functioning as, as, a, as a nation's head. He's, 
He's functioning as a leader of a nation of people. Yes. But that's not the particular leadership that I want you to see this morning. Because not only is he serving in this scene as a, as a leader of a nation, he's serving as the leader of his home, as the leader of a family. As he steps forward and says, the rest of you can go serve whomever you want, but not me and my house. Me and my house, we're going to serve King Jesus. I'm, I'm stirred by that. I'm stirred in the same way. It's almost when I see an Errol Flynn movie, you know, whoa! It's, it's full of impact. He brings his whole audience to the place where he says, all right, you've seen what's happened back here. You've seen deliverance after deliverance after deliverance, and now it's time to make a choice. Come on! Who are you going to serve? You're going to serve the gods of Egypt? Gods of the Amorites? I don't know. But I know who we're serving. In my family, we're going to serve God. You know, guys, um, my, the thing that I have in view today, if, as you might anticipate, is, is leadership. Not national leadership, but family leadership. Now, I have to say that, indeed, this story is more about a national leader. But it's about a national leader telling you something about the way he leads his home, too. And um, very honestly, uh, that used to be a valued role and dimension played by us dads. You know, um, there was a time when, um, when father knew best. Now, that's a long time ago. <laughs> I mean, uh, um, over the years, television has seen to it that, that uh, the image that we get of dads is not that anymore. I mean, we're no longer the patriarchs and the pillars of our homes. Uh, if, you, um, if you listen to uh, uh, Jill Taylor in, in Home Improvements, she describes the leader of that home as pathetic. <laughs> um, and today, uh, in, a, um, in a TV show that has become quite the hit, judging Amy. Um, fathers are no longer even relevant. You know, it all started um, back with Ozzie and Harriet. Um, did you know that, that Ozzie and Harriet was a TV adaptation of a, of a radio show, The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet? Ozzie Nelson wrote, produced, and directed, and even staffed it. He chose his wife and his sons to play his wife and his sons in the television version. That show still has the record for the longest running TV sitcom ever, 14 years, from 1952 to 1966. After that came Make Room for Daddy, Danny Thomas of Memphis fame, um, started in, in 1953. But the show that really defined the genre was the show starring Robert Young. You remember it, Father Knows Best. And uh, Robert Young was the proud and, and um, very capable leader of, of uh, Princess, Bud, and Kitten. And uh, the show, uh, from week after week, uh, was 
some kind of problem that the kids had gotten into, and, and from time to time his wife, Jane, was it Wyatt? Or I always get Jane Wyatt and Wyman. I think it's Jane Wyatt. And every now and then she'd have a problem, but it was primarily the kids, and Daddy would help steer his children through their problems as they dealt with what was then their own version of teenage angst. Uh, it, would, it would be quite tame these days, but, um, but father, um, father was the pillar and the patriarch of the home. Um, the plot, the formula was pretty much the same every week. And then, then came Archie Bunker, written by Norman Lear. And um, in that show, you get a whole new portrait of, of fatherhood. He, um, he wasn't exactly the family foundation. He was the family oppressor. And uh, at, at best, he was a joke. And it wasn't so much his bigotry that was so damaging to the family foundation as much as it was his buffoonery. He was an idiot. And um, everybody had to try to bail him out of his idiocy. But today... Today, we, uh, we are blessed with, with Judge Amy. And um, really, 1999's only real hit of the year. Amy uh, has left her New York law firm, and her husband, by the way, and has moved back home to her hometown and moved in with her mother, who is a semi-retired social worker. And uh, she has taken a seat on the bench of the local juvenile delinquency court. And um, it is up to her and her semi-retired mother to each week rescue some other child from some other kind of dysfunctional family that is normally headed up by some kind of highly dysfunctional father. It's a it's an endless parade of bad dads, uh, mentally ill dads, murderous dads, religious fanatic dads, nutso dads, female genital mutilating dads, intolerant dads, and the worst of all dads, dads that spank. And um, on uh, one uh, episode, I read about Amy from her position on uh, the bench says this and I quote I can just see her now this is a pretty little thing each year 2,000 children die at the hands of their parents and, and uh, folks please don't misunderstand me I'm not trying to make light of child abuse I'm not trying to say it doesn't exist either so I'm not that's not my point she goes on, thousands more are permanently disabled. Every day I see children who have been seriously injured by their parents under the guise of discipline. So um, up to her, or according to her, it is now up to her and her mother to deliver the children from homes led by dysfunctional fathers. No longer does father know best. Now it's, it's the courts according to Amy, the courts that know best. So while the culture is, gets all of its views, at least most of its views of 
things from uh, television, from Norman Lear and the rest of his Hollywood ilk. What is, um, what is the Christian church saying about all this? I wanna, I'm going to try to illustrate by a story that I read that was told by a friend of mine, um, a pastor, who, uh, who was engaged in, a, in, in some marital counseling. A couple had come to him and for marital counseling because their marriage was rotten, and indeed it was, and you'll see that in a minute, I guess. But um, he, he came, the couple came and sat down and told them about how horrible their marriage was. And, and so the, my counselor, preacher friend, uh, looks at the husband and says, well, why do you think your marriage is so bad? And uh, the young man said, well, you know, I'm, I'm pretty baffled and uh, mystified by it myself. I, I, I really don't understand because at the Christian college where I graduated, they, uh, they told us about uh, the, the roles of uh, parents and, and home and, and how the Bible is supposed to be the guide of the home and, and we're supposed to form our homes around uh, uh, biblical mandates. And, and I've, I've sought to do that and, and I've sought to ex express all of those biblical norms in my leadership of my home. And so my counselor, preacher, buddy, said, well, could you, could you explain describe for me in, in some kind of everyday language how it is that you're seeking to express your leadership in your home. And this is what he said, and I'm quoting at this point. In order to make sure there is no question about who is the head of our home, I try to make sure both my wife and I let Scripture rule our actions. That's pretty good, he goes on, for instance, even when I come home from work and I want to relax, I still try to act as the head of my home. If my wife asks for some help with something in the kitchen or with the kids, this guy had three preschoolers and a set of twins, um, I, I, don't, I don't immediately drop my newspaper and snap to attention. To make sure we both understand who is the head of our home, I flip a coin in my mind. If it comes up heads, I help. If it comes up tails, I don't. That way, there's no question of who's in charge. Now, I hope that that will appear to be as preposterous as it actually is to all of you. I, I do want to tell one quick story um, of the Brazil trip. Uh, we, we want to try and relate what happened, but um, I was preaching last Sunday about right now, um, about right now, uh, at a church in downtown Recife that was really prettier than the one that you and I go to. Much prettier. It wasn't air conditioned, but it was much prettier. Um, and it didn't have those soft chairs to yourself, but it was much prettier. It was a downtown church, and uh, it was kind of the, where the, some of the Brazilian affluent went. The previous Wednesday night, um, I had been asked to speak at a small group. You know, we have grace groups here. Well, they have small groups in that church, too, over in Recife. And I was, I'd been asked to speak at, um, at a small group in a home there in Recife. So I was driven to this home and, and turned out to be quite a fluent home. And turned out that the, the mother and the father both had PhDs. Um, one taught in the university there in Recife, and the other had just retired from a teaching post at the university there. They were both very bright people, and beautiful children, and, uh, and a very lovely home. 
wasn't air conditioned, but it was a very lovely home. Um, and so this group began to gather. And, uh, you know, first of all, there, there's one, and then there's four, and then and we're thinking, oh, well, you know, it's going to be a small group. Well, by the end of the night, there were 30 in this little home, and, and um, um, I was supposed to do something to entertain them. And so, um, and nobody ever, that was my, that's my biggest complaint about my trip. Nobody ever told me what they wanted from me. You know, I didn't, I, I took this briefcase full of stuff to do and never used any of it. And so they'd say, well, why don't you do this? And I said, well, okay, let's do that. So I started talking about marriage. And what I did is I asked them to define love. I, I tore out sheets of paper, gave them a little sheet of paper, and I brought some pens with me, and I said, all I want you to do is define love. Well, I mean, that set up, I had a translator, you know, who's doing all this. Well, that just sent a buzz through the room. Well, the, the mother of the home, who was a PhD in some kind of engineering, I want to say civil engineering, I'm not sure, but uh, she was an engineer. And, um, I mean, she scribbled down something right away. And, and I had told them, you're not, you're not to turn these in. Uh, don't turn them in. I don't even want to see them. I just want you to go through, the, you know, maybe wake y'all up, so... And I, um, I asked her to write something down to define love. Well, I mean, she took about six seconds, wrote something down, and walked over to me and handed it to us. I said, I don't want it. She stuck it at me anyway. This is it. And I saved it because I want you to see her definition of love. Submission. Submission, I think it says, something like that. Is that how you define it? Here's my point, ladies and gentlemen. I'm disgusted with Norman Lear. I would never pull for the Atlanta Braves, ever, because it's owned by Ted Turner. I hate all that stuff. But in terms of our understanding of biblical headship and leadership, we cannot completely blame it on the culture. Nope. Nope. We can bash them all we like. But they're not completely to blame for our mistaken views of what it means to lead and head up a home. Nope. And they're not to, uh, to, to blame for women misdefining their roles either. No, some of that blame is ours. Maybe mine more so than yours. But some of the blame has to be laid at the feet of the Christian church. Now, gang, here's, here's one of my burdens. I want to reach that culture out there. Don't you? Don't you want to reach them? Well, let me tell you one way that you will never reach them. You'll never reach them by telling them that you flip a coin mentally to see if you're going to help your wife or not. You'll never reach them that way. I, I just have a hunch. I may be wrong, but I don't think they're going to listen to you. But one of the ways I think we can reach that culture, or at least help us in, the, in our efforts, is to clearly and persuasively re-articulate. I did not say redefine. They are defined for us, I think, fairly clearly in the scriptures. But re-articulate what biblical headship means for families. Um, what does the Bible mean when it says that a husband is to be the head of his home? It does say that. Did you know that? 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. Actually, it doesn't say home, it says wife. And when the Bible calls wives to submit, which is a word that our culture finds completely shrill, I don't even want to hear the word, 
Do you know that I do weddings sometimes and I have to tell people, sorry, I won't, I won't delete the word. And I'm, I'm not hard to get along with, but I will not delete the word submission from a wedding ceremony. If that's narrow-minded, I guess I am, but I won't. But they don't even want to hear the word. And very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, I, I, I don't even... I think some Christians merely tolerate it, and I think it's a wonderful word. But, you know, it's Father's Day. <laughs> We're not here to talk about submission. We're here to talk about headship, leadership, fatherly leadership. So let me do that, and I'm finished. Uh, I want to give you some ideas, I hope, that will help re-articulate what fatherly headship is all about, what it means to lead a home. Um, and I've got three things for you. And, I, and I, think they're, I think they're pretty good. I mean, and I think they're pretty... I mean, it's not like they're vague and mystifying and churchy, you know? Um, I, I think they might give you some, not a whole lot, but some direction. As we seek to come to the place where we can stand up in front of our communities and say, I don't know what y'all are doing with your families, <laughs> but it's for me and my house. We will serve the Lord. And I want you to know, this was not Joshua Anna. This was Joshua. That is, it wasn't his wife talking. It was the head of his home telling the world that his home is going to serve the Lord. Now, let me, let me begin by debunking, just making fun of, lambasting, doing whatever I can to eliminate some of the ideas that we get. I don't think any of you buy into this stuff. But it, if you do, shame on you. But hopefully you don't, and we can just at, l at least get an idea of what we're not talking about. The one, and these might date me too. One of them um, I, I, I want to eliminate is the Marlboro Man image. You know, that rugged, ready, independent, tough kind of guy. Only needs a good smoke and a good whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's ridiculous. Get rid of it. Don't teach your sons that. Don't let them look at it. It's absurd. It doesn't exist. And it ought not ever control anything we think. Another one. Michelob Weekends. Where a bunch of guys get, get around a table with beer in their hands and some good-looking babes kind of draped over them and they say, it don't get any better than this. Well, if it don't, might we all fold up shop now? That's absurd, ladies and gentlemen. It's absurd. It doesn't exist. Um, but maybe this is a little bit closer to home. Headship, that is nothing more, not much more than a nasty synonym for power plays, where we assert our rights. Um, dictatorship, that kind of management of a home. Now, I don't know where you got that, but let me just assure you, if you are a dictator in your home and your children relate to you as a dictator and your wife has somewhat of that response to you, you missed it because that's not what the Bible teaches. Another one. This is my favorite. It's the one where the husband sees himself as the provider but is basically otherwise passive. 
You know, gang, you don't have to be in the ministry long to have some sweet little young mother come to you and say something, something like this. My husband hadn't made a decision about our family in years. Very honestly, um, he makes no attempt at disciplining our children. He's not involved with uh, the, the life of the family. He never consults any of us, particularly me, about uh, the decisions, the large decisions being made in the home. He makes decisions about being out of town for company business with complete disregard of the family routine and the family schedule. Uh, the kids hardly know him. Uh, all he does is come home from time to time, interrupt our routine, drop off a paycheck, and head off into his own world uh, to uh, continue his pursuit. You don't have to be in the ministry long before you hear something like that. It's an indifference that a husband thinks he has a right to because he has provided financially. Awful. Awful. Completely intolerable in terms of biblical headship. Um, kind of a, here's another one, kind of a managerial machismo, you know, where you, um, where you think that you're supposed to be in the home to be able to call the shots. You know, kind of like you do down at the office, where they call you Mr. Kind of a swaggering independence where we rule by intimidation. All that's got to go. It's got to go. Now, I, I don't know whether it influences you or you're guilty of it, but if you are, gentlemen, it's got to go. Every last vestige of it has got to go. That is not biblical headship. Now, let me tell you what I, in the next 90 seconds, what it is. We'll take a little bit longer. Guys, um, the Bible never sanctions actions. It never sanctions anything that makes us look like a bully and allows us to call it leadership. Never. What I think you get is, in terms of um, biblical headship, biblical leadership, is, is, the, is a picture of a conscientious usage of, uh, of a role that God gave you, that is, uh, authority that, it is, that has been placed in your hands, that is being used in the interest of the members of your family, seeing to it that all of them are nourished and cared for, provided for, are safe, are loved, and are experiencing God's blessing. That is biblical headship. That is the conscientious usage of an authority that God entrusted to you to make sure that pe the members of your family prosper. And I'm not talking about getting an education. I'm talking about that they experience the blessing of God. Now, guys, what does that involve? Three things. Here they are. Number one, sacrifice. Active sacrifice. My brothers in Christ, God requires that of us as biblical heads of our homes. Um, if, you, if you want some further clarification, then here's how you can do it. Here's how you can get it. Think of the Lord Jesus Christ for the moment. He laid aside all of his interests so that he could meet our needs, but it never once damaged the amount of authority that he had. All authority in heaven and earth was Jesus Christ just as surely as when he was on the cross as it was when he was ascending into heaven. But he was using that authority to serve his bride. Um, gang, or, or brothers, if we can ever get it through our heads 
that meeting the needs of our family does not mean an erosion of our authority. We'll all be better off. Biblical headship requires active sacrifice. Number two, um, you and I, brothers, are to reflect the, the, the priestly role of Christ in our homes. That is, Jesus was prophet, priest, and king. We are priests in our king. Well, what does that mean? It means that in our home, living with us ought to be sanctifying. That is, living with us should provide an environment in which our, our wives and our children are prospering spiritually just by living with us. Living in the home that you head up ought to be sanctifying. So, I, I, I think you can see how much that means or how much that's going to mean in terms of our own health and wealth of our souls. Um, a wife and children should know more about the love of their Savior simply by living in the homes that we head up. Guys, um, we're supposed to be dispensing grace, as did our high priest. Grace to our families. So, active sacrifice, um, a, a sanctifying environment that we produce by modeling Christ. And then finally, one of my favorites is biblical headship requires that you and I, brothers, initiate. We are the initiators. Have you ever, have you ever seen, have you ever noticed, I mean, maybe maybe I'm the only weirdo that did, but um, you know the, the, the leave and cleave principle in Genesis 2? Listen to this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Do you, know, do you, do you get what's woven into that? That is, a man shall leave and be joined. Who is the active agent in all that? It's the man. He's, he's leaving and he's producing cleaving. He's the, he's the one out in front with all the activity with all the action. That's what an initiator does. Let me mention three areas where I think, and there could be numerous others. I'm sure you could come up with a better list than I did. Um, this was written in a motel in Recife, Brazil, actually. Um, three things, three areas. Number one, problem solving. You know, guys, I want you to know that I produce more problems in our home than I solve. And, and, and very honestly, I'm not so much what I mean by this is not that I have to come up with the genius to solve the problems in the family. My role is to simply initiate with my wife an occasion so that the problem can be solved. That I say to my wife, okay, I'm as mad at you as you are at me. But we've got to get this right. We've got to sit down and solve this. So we're the ones responsible for prompting that discussion that leads to the solution. Again, in our home, you've heard me say this before, but the, the genius, the brains in our organization don't lie between these two ears. But I've got a wife. And uh, she's pretty bright. And usually far more right than I. 
My job is simply to not let it fester for one day and two days and three days and then a week and then after the week all we did with it was sleeping under some carpet. No, gentlemen, we're, we're initiators in the world of problem solving. Number two, spiritual direction. Folks, or brothers, if your wife ever comes into your bedroom on Sunday morning and says, Honey, honey, it's time to get up and go to church. Come on. If that happens one time in your family, you blew it. You, you can change it, but we're supposed to be directing our families in terms of spiritual gain. We're supposed to be saying, this is a value among the young clan. This is something that we're going to make sacrifices for. This is what we're going to do. And I am going to lead us into making and insisting that this is a spiritual, this is a priority in our lives. Guys, I don't have to be the, the, the biblical giant or the spiritual superstar. All I got to do is initiate that this is important. And we're going to, we're not going to plan things so that our souls suffer. Brothers, don't do that. Don't create occasions so that your souls will shrivel up and die. Do just the opposite. Make sure that your family knows that spiritual gain is a priority. Thirdly, we initiate in terms of financial responsibility. I am not saying that you have to balance and manage the checkbook. I'm not saying that. Very frankly, some of your wives are far better mathematicians than you are, than we are. They're far more organized. They're far more detailed. I'm simply saying in terms of, for instance, how much debt will you allow the family to manage? Decision, financial responsibility. That's all I'm saying that we have to lead our homes to make sure that everybody in our home knows that MLGMW will never show up on our doorstep to turn off the lights. That'll never happen to us. Because we're going to make sure that the bills can be paid. Pretty big bill, huh, guys? It sure is. It's enormous. Anybody up for it? I hope you are, but let me tell you this. It says a lot about the necessity on us to have souls that are healthy. Being a biblical head, being a biblical leader requires that I be spiritually healthy myself. It means that, you know, and I'll say this, and this is risks a lot of misunderstanding, but I don't know how many women we can expect to submit to men who aren't submitted to God. I'm not trying to say, ladies, it would be right for you not. I'm simply saying, I, I can't, I don't know how we can expect that. If we haven't communicated that we are submitted across the board to the King of Kings. So the end result, what it calls for, brothers, is for all of us to go get real healthy so that we can one day stand before our neighbors and say, I don't know what y'all going to do. <laughs> for me in my house. Our Father, I pray that you will um, encourage your people by having been reminded of truths that are, that are um, 
so important as we build our families and build them on solid rock. And I pray that you will use the instruction that a little lit was here to prompt us to greater heights of holiness. Oh God, I, I dare say every man in this church wants to lead and wants to lead well. We don't want to be boss. We don't want to be managers. We want to be le leaders. And so help us to do that. Help us to do it with great sensitivity, with great sacrifice, with great spiritual fervor, and with great financial responsibility. Help us be that, oh God. There's far more we need to be. We know that. But this is where we can start. We commit that pursuit to you. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Guys, the way we close the service.